please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. This is the sixth and final episode in a mini-series of sorts, The Wives of King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII had six wives. His sixth and last wife was Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr, according to Wikipedia, was born in 1512, probably in August. I'll skip my usual rant about the lack of care they seem to have had back then in recording births of daughters, and just be grateful they at least seemed to know what year she was born in. Her mother was a close friend and attendant of Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife. It's even thought that Catherine Parr was possibly named after Queen Catherine, who was her godmother. I did not know that last bit, and just had to do some math. Catherine of Aragon was born in 1487, so would have been about 27 years old when Catherine Parr was born, and would have been queen for about five years when she became Catherine Parr's godmother. You guys, I had no idea. Although, they seem to have only a few names for children back in the 1500s. For boys, it was Thomas, George, and Edward. For girls, Catherine, Anne, and Mary. So, I mean, it's possible she was named after the Queen, but it's not like they had a long list of names they were choosing from, so it might just be a coincidence. Catherine's father died when she was young. Catherine's initial education was similar to other well-born women of the time, but she developed a passion for learning which would continue throughout her life. She was fluent in French, Latin, and Italian, and began learning Spanish after becoming Queen. Unlike Henry's previous wives, Catherine Parr was married before she married Henry. She would also marry a fourth time after Henry died, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. Her first marriage to Edward Burr lasted only a few years before Edward died. I looked, but wasn't able to find a cause of death for poor Edward. Her second marriage was to John Neville and lasted about nine years. John was twice Catherine's age and had two children from his first marriage, making Catherine a stepmother. It was during this time that Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon's marriage fell apart and the Church of England was created. John was a member of the Catholic Church and so was against Henry's annulment from Catherine of Aragon and his marriage to Anne Boleyn and the separation from the Catholic Church that whole thing created. 
Because of his support of the Catholic Church and political stance, John and Catherine got caught in the middle of some of the uprisings that were taking place during this tumultuous time. Catherine and her stepchildren were even held hostage while her house was ransacked by rebels during the Pilgrimage of Grace. Just to keep the timeline straight, this happened during the time Henry was married to Jane Seymour. Catherine, John, and the kids all managed to make it through all that turbulence physically unscathed, but their reputations weren't. They laid low, away from court, for several years until the dust settled. It was during this time that Catherine, spoilers for history, met Thomas Seymour, who would be her fourth husband. By 1542, John's health had begun to decline, and Catherine took care of him until he died in 1543. Not having anywhere else to go, Catherine went back to court. Using her late mother's friendship with Catherine of Aragon, Catherine renewed her friendship with the former queen's daughter, Lady Mary. She was soon established as part of Mary's household by February 1543. I'm bringing this date up for a reason. And it was there that Catherine caught the attention of the king, and he proposed to her. There was already a romance brewing between her and Thomas Seymour. I've talked about this guy in a previous episode, and we'll get more into him in a bit. But she was kind of stuck, so she accepted. I remember watching a documentary about this years ago. And the guy hosting the documentary said something to the effect of, what could she do? When the King of England proposes, especially when that king is King Henry VIII, you accept. That phrase has always stuck in my mind, and I can't really think of a better way to put it than that. So there you go. By the way, Henry had Seymour sent to Brussels to remove him from the picture for the time being. Henry and Catherine were married in July 1543. So she became part of Mary's household in February and was married to Henry by July. Things moved fast. When she became queen, Catherine installed her stepdaughter from her marriage to John Neville as her lady-in-waiting and also gave her stepson's wife a position in her household. Henry's relationship with his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, was okay, like, at least he wasn't banishing them from court and refusing to see them at all anymore. But Catherine had a big part in fully reconciling Henry's frosty relationship with his daughters and also developed a good relationship with Henry's son, Edward. Henry went on his last campaign to France. Oh my God, he was always fighting with France and or Spain. Quick aside, one of my favorite things about the show The Tudors, as much as I enjoy this show, it's for entertainment only. It is not historically accurate at all. Anyway, one of the best things about that show to me is Jonathan Rhys Myers as Henry reacting to news that France or Spain has made some move against England. He's always completely shocked and is like, what? Each and every time. And it will never not make me laugh. End of sidebar. Like I was saying, Henry went on campaign to France from July to September 1544, leaving Catherine as his regent, something he'd only done with Catherine of Aragon. Her regency council was made up of family members and other people who were sympathetic to her, so she was able to rule as she saw fit. She handled provisions, finances, signed five royal proclamations, and maintained constant contact with the lieutenant over a complex and unstable situation with Scotland. 
To be fair, the situation with Scotland at that time seems like it was always complex and unstable. Wikipedia says, It is thought that her actions as regent, together with her strength of character and noted dignity and later religious convictions, greatly influenced her stepdaughter, Lady Elizabeth, the future Elizabeth I. I'm going to read between the lines and interpret that to mean that Catherine Parr did a perfectly fine job as regent, but Elizabeth was away at Ashridge for most of the time Henry was in France, so I get the sediment of that line, but I think it's a bit misleading. Catherine was in constant communication with Elizabeth, and they'd end up being super close, and I'm sure Catherine was, in general, a good example for Elizabeth and a sort of mentor to her, but... I think it's a bit over the top to imply that Catherine's, what, two or three months as regent influenced Elizabeth that much. Again, I'm not a historian, so I could be way off by saying that. It's just that in my experience, sometimes documentaries and articles can overinflate the importance of things. This isn't a dig at Catherine Parr or Elizabeth I. I'm just trying to be objective and keep everything in perspective. Previous wives of Henry had been brought down by rumors of affairs or actual affairs. This wasn't the case for Catherine Parr. Instead, she was almost brought down by her outspokenness about religion. Although she was brought up as a Catholic, she later became sympathetic to and interested in the new faith, the Church of England. But in 1546, the Bishop of Winchester and Lord Chancellor grew suspicious of her beliefs and tried to turn the king against her. An arrest warrant was even drawn up for her. However, she was warned about this by some people at court, and she managed to calm Henry down by convincing him that she had only argued about religion with him to take his mind off the suffering caused by his painful leg. Remember that leg wound that had reopened when he had that terrible jousting accident when he was married to Anne Boleyn? Well, it never healed, and would get infected and swollen, and was extremely painful. And stinky. Catherine's arrest was cancelled at the last minute. Henry was already in poor health. He had been in poor health for years, but it wasn't too long after he almost had Catherine Parr arrested that Henry's health got even worse. He died on January 28, 1547. Henry was interred in a vault at St. George's Chapel next to Jane Seymour, his third wife and mother of his son Edward. Shortly before he died, Henry made provision for an allowance of £7,000 per year for Catherine to support herself. That's $4,584,960 in today's money. He further ordered that after his death, Catherine, though a Queen Dowager, should be given the respect of a Queen of England, as if he were still alive. Henry also specified in his will that Catherine was allowed to keep the Queen's jewels. Catherine retired from court after the coronation of Henry's son Edward to her home in Chelsea. It wasn't too long after Henry died that Thomas Seymour returned to court. He and Catherine swiftly picked their romance up where it had left off before she married Henry. They wanted to get married, but it was too soon after Henry's death to ask the Regency Council that had been set up for the nine-year-old Edward for permission to marry. But sometime at the end of May, they got married in secret. King Edward and his council didn't find out until several months later, and when they did, 
they were pissed. When Catherine and Seymour's marriage became common knowledge, everyone was scandalized. Edward and Mary were especially displeased by the union, which I can understand. Edward, because even though he was only nine, he was the king and should have been asked first. Mary, because Catherine had been her mother's goddaughter and her stepmother, and while she didn't need Mary's permission, I'm sure she felt like at least a heads-up would have been nice. Seymour was censured and reprimanded by the council, and he wrote to Mary asking her to intervene on his behalf. Mary was very upset at what she believed to be his forward and tasteless actions and refused to help. Mary even went as far as asking her sister Elizabeth not to interact with Queen Catherine any further. During all this, Catherine began having arguments with her brother-in-law, Edward Seymour. Like Thomas, Edward was the king's uncle and also was the Lord Protector during Edward's regency. A struggle developed between Catherine and his wife Anne, who had once been her lady-in-waiting. The argument was about Catherine's jewels, the ones Henry had left her in his will. Anne believed that as Queen Dowager, Catherine was no longer entitled to wear the jewels belonging to the wife of the king. Instead, Anne thought that she, as wife of the protector, should be the one to wear them. Eventually, Anne won the argument, which left her relationship with Catherine permanently damaged. The relationship between the two Seymour brothers also worsened as a result, since Thomas saw the whole dispute as a personal attack by his brother. I'm not going to lie. This all sounds super petty to me, but, well, petty is actually one of the nicest words I have to describe what I think about Thomas Seymour, so there you go. In March of 1548, Anne became pregnant. This baby would have been a surprise, because she hadn't become pregnant in her past three marriages. It was during this time Seymour began to take an interest in Elizabeth. Seymour had already tried to wed Mary and Elizabeth while Henry was still alive, so him being a creep to Elizabeth while married to a pregnant Catherine doesn't surprise me. There were reports of, air quotes, horseplay between Thomas and Elizabeth that Catherine may have participated in, and Thomas entering Elizabeth's bedroom and Catherine walking in on him and Elizabeth in an embrace, it's all very weird and gross and even at its most innocent, very inappropriate. I think it says a lot that Elizabeth moved out and didn't have much, if anything, to do with Catherine Parr ever again. Catherine gave birth to a daughter, Mary Seymour, August 30th, 1548, but then died on September 5th of what is assumed to have been childbed fever. She was buried at St. Mary's Chapel. I know that this episode is about Catherine Parr, but I think a quick follow-up on what ended up happening with her late husband, Thomas Seymour, is appropriate. To make a long story short, and to be honest, because I think this story will eventually be its own episode, he literally ended up shooting and killing a dog, then basically kidnapping his nephew, Edward, the king. He was tried for treason and executed on March 20th, 1549. I don't miss him. Sorry, not sorry. So you'd think Catherine Parr's story would be done, but oh boy, is there more. You know how I said that Catherine was buried at St. Mary's Chapel? Well, that chapel is on the grounds of Sudley Castle, which was used as a base for Charles I during the English Civil War and was sieged and sacked in 1643. 
This led to it changing hands several times and eventually being abandoned and Catherine Parr's grave was lost. Okay, this is kind of sad to me, but makes sense so far. Then her grave was rediscovered in 1768. Here's where it gets wild. You know what? I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia here because I can't even find the words. Catherine's presence at the castle was first rediscovered by Reverend Huguet when researching at the College of Arms, passing his findings on to George Pitt, first Baron Rivers, the owner of the castle in 1768. Joseph Lucas, a member of the local gentry who dwelled in the outer court of the castle, renting it from Baron Rivers, was aware of Huguet's work and searched for the lost grave, discovering it among the ruins of the chapel in 1782. An account of the discovery was later published in Notes and Queries by the daughter of a Mr. Brooks, who had been present at the discovery. In the summer of the year 1782, the earth in which Queen Catherine Parr lay interred was removed, and at the depth of about two feet or very little more, her leaden coffin was found quite whole. Mr. Lucas had the curiosity to rip up the top of the coffin, expecting to discover within it only the bones of the deceased, but to his great surprise found the whole body wrapped in six or seven sere cloth linen, entire and uncorrupted. His unwarranted curiosity led him to make an incision through the sear cloth, which covered one of the arms of the corpse, the flesh of which what at the time was white and moist. The coffin was reopened in 1783, 1784, 1786, and in 1792, when local vandals broke into the coffin and threw the corpse in a rubbish heap, leading to Mr. Lucas reinterring the body in a hidden walled grave. The last time the coffin was opened was in 1817, when the local rector decided to move it to the crypt under the chapel. When opening it this final time, it was found the body had been reduced to a skeleton and much of the coffin filled with ivy. During these various openings of the coffin, fragments of Catherine's dress and locks of her hair were collected, one of which was gifted to Elizabeth Hamilton. Most of these items are now on display at Sudley Castle. The coffin was last moved in 1861 to its final location in the fully restored chapel under a canopied neo-Gothic tomb designed by Sir George Gilbert Scott with a recumbent marble figure by John Philip. I'm a fan of true crime, and I love horror movies, so I don't think I'm too precious about things like this, but wow, does this story upset me. That something like this would happen to anyone's body, not just once, but repeatedly over 200 years after their death, just blows my mind. I think it's just ghoulish. There's no other word for it. I'm glad they restored the chapel and gave her a tomb, and I hope she can rest in peace now. An extra source I used for this episode is allthatsinteresting.com. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow, 
but more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends.